What's up, everyone? Welcome to the first of many stream sessions that we will be doing of my profound distillations. As you guys know, I am a polymath, which means that I have learned much across many different disciplines and I synthesize and I distill. And so in this first of many of these streams, I'm going to talk about different subjects straight from my distilled notes to help you guys grasp the true profundity of what it means to actually sponge up wisdom from different disciplines and be able to integrate that into your perceptual schemas that then enable you to maximize your own gifts and flourishing and the collective prosperity. This one is very close to many of our hearts. This is the California water system. I'm very excited because you're going to see a lot of interesting aspects to the way that I actually distill. Here, right off the beginning, you can see that I have, I'm using what's called exegesis, which means to draw out. I'm using colors. I'm using formatting, like bolding, like all caps. I'm using emojis. And in doing so, I'm able to, to draw out the profundity, okay? You'll see as we go that there are beautiful visual images for you as well along the way. And that's going to give you a deeper landing and ossification of the knowledge inside of you. And so we have this most artistic style of distillation that is going to have the highest efficacy. All right, so we'll begin. Some of the highlights of the California water system. If California was a separate country, it'd be the sixth largest economy in the world. You all hear me say that on the program quite often. California would be the sixth largest economy in the world as a state by itself. And that has a lot to do with three major areas of California. Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and the Central Valley. So Silicon Valley meaning San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, the whole Bay Area. Hollywood meaning the whole Los Angeles metro area. And then, and that, and that very much so includes San Diego. And that's kind of interesting because it's called Silicon Beach, right? You have Silicon Valley and you have Silicon Beach down here in Southern California, encompassing the Los Angeles and San Diego scenes. And now you have Silicon Hills that's coming up in Austin, Texas, which is very fascinating. And then you have the Central Valley. And the Central Valley is the agricultural beauty of the almost the entire planet. 
and we'll unpack why in another conversation on California agriculture specifically. In terms of GDP rankings, this is always in important to address along the way. The United States has about a $21 trillion GDP. China has a $14 trillion GDP, but is very quickly surpassing the United States in things like purchasing power, as well as overall is projected to absolutely uh, blow past the United States uh, this century in GDP. Japan, $5 trillion as the third. Germany, $4 trillion as the fourth. UK at five with $3 trillion. And then there's California in spot number six at $3 trillion. And then the next countries in order go France, India, Brazil. Sorry, France, India, Italy, Brazil, Canada, Korea, Russia, Australia, Spain, Mexico, and Indonesia. The USA has been the world's largest economy since 1871, 150 straight years, about to be overthrown in the 2020s by China, which is crazy, growing at 10% per year over the last 30 years. And a lot of this has to do with Deng Xiaoping's cultural reformation. We're very lucky to have went to China to collab in 2019 on geopolitical diplomacy mission. The USA is also uh, second worldwide in natural resource value at $45 trillion. These are US dollar figures and second worldwide in manufacturing after China. And as you guys know, we are big advocates for the code of law in the United States. United States's social fabric is very, very keen for entrepreneurship, innovation that's been stimulating economic growth for a long time. Uh, the USD is most widely used currency for global transactions. All right. A little bit of background. Now we'll dive in. Again, as the sixth largest economy in the world, as a state, California by itself, water is extremely important. Extremely important. That's why it's sustainable development goal number six water and clean water and sanitation. That's why it's SDG number six, because it's that paramount. You have to have water at the nutrients in high level perception. You have to have water at the seed in the nutrients for it to be able to blossom fruits. And it's very similar with the human. The human seed needs nutrients, water, in order for it to be able to fruit. If there's no water, if you can't walk over to your tap and turn it on and get water, there will be massive disruption. People will become primal very fast. So water is a paramount resource and we must take it very 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 seriously so the california water system specifically serves 30 million plus people just to give you an idea i come from the state of south dakota right my lineage is armenian but i was born here as a first generation immigrant in sioux falls south dakota and the whole state of south dakota in the midwest of the u.s has less than one million people the whole state 
of South Dakota has less than 1 million people. The California water system serves 30 million plus people. It also irrigates approximately 6 million acres of farmland across 70,000 farms. 40% of California water is used for agriculture. 70,000 farms, that means 70,000 farmers. That means hundreds of thousands of employees that are employed by the farming industry, the egg industry here in California. Almost half of the water is going to be used by egg alone, okay? And you, now you'll see why. California provides half of USA's fruits, vegetables, and nuts. That's a kind of a broad way to say it. And if you break it down a little bit more clearly, it's that California provides specifically approximately 33% of all of the USA's vegetables. And then it produces approximately two-thirds or 67% of all of the USA's fruits and nuts, which is crazy. One state produces two-thirds of the United States fruits and nuts and one-third of the vegetables. That is insanely important because on that root level, with the basic needs, the human needs food like they need water. And so if something happens to the California water supply, then you have a massive problem with the California agriculture industry. And if you have a problem with the California egg industry, that means every single person across the United States has a severe lack of nutrients for their seed because they can't go to the grocery store to get their vegetables, fruits, and nuts like they could before with such voracious demand. So when we walk into the grocery store, we have to think, we have to feel, we have to understand the interconnectedness of everything, that massive hydrological cycle that moves on the entire planet that then comes into the in California the Sierra Nevada snowfall and that then melts into the rivers that we then take and use in our agricultural system to grow our food California's droughts have been some of the most painstaking moments in the history of United States agriculture and we need to take this very 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 seriously because we don't fully realize how hedonically adapted we are to walking into grocery stores and just getting whatever we want whenever we want and not thinking about the supply chain and the interconnectedness of all of the planet and people that bring that food into the grocery store for us to buy. California produces 40% of all of USA's organic production. It has the most certified organic farms in the USA. The Central Valley is one of the world's most productive egg regions. So that's at the world level. 
So California Central Valley is at the world level. That's huge. That's huge. 230 plus crops are grown in California Central Valley. 230. On less than 1% of total farmland in the U.S. in Central Valley, it produces 8% of our nation's egg output by value. 45 billion. So on, which is this is nuts, on less than 1%, right? This is the Pareto. This is the power law distribution. On less than 1% of all of the farmland in the Central Valley, it's producing 8% of the nation's agricultural output. Wow. And so you can imagine that that 1% of land is extremely valuable. It's extremely fertile. It's been, the, the soil has been providing us with the capacity to blossom the fruits, the nuts, the vegetables that we want. And we need to think long term, like the indigenous seventh generation principle around what's going to happen in one generation or two generations or three generations or up to seven generations down the line. If we're continuously using the soil repeatedly, in a style of a monoculture where it's just one plant or one crop rather than it being rotated or rather than it being a complete permacultural system. We need to really start thinking in terms of holism as we do our egg in order to make sure that we don't have oops moments with the nutrient densities of soils. extremely financially lucrative California farms received 50 billion in cash receipts in 2019 exporting 21 billion approximately 26% of volume of production and that's more than 13% of the nation's total egg val value, producing 400 plus agricultural commodities, California farms. It's crazy. It's more than 13% of the nation's total egg value. Wow. And you'll see more of this data on California agriculture in one of the next streams that we do regarding our distillations. So you'll see California agriculture and you'll see the, the incredible report that California makes every single year that I took the data from and the images from. It's an incredible report and you can find it in the California Department of Agriculture. This well-designed report, it's great taxpayer dollars. So look for these reports more often you'll find really good data distillations and syntheses that then you can share with others and add to your own augmentation of perception so now you have some background about why the california water system is so freaking important because it's literally giving 
330 million people in the U.S., a third of their vegetables and two-thirds of their fruit and two-thirds of their nuts. Of course it's fucking important. So that's good background. Now, the idea of an aqueduct. Aqueducts are genius. They're brilliant. I love them. They they inspire us to look back at our roots of where we came from and how smart we were to realize that we could use gravity to pull water to the cities that were located at sea level. So we were populating cities at sea level and we needed to bring fresh water from higher elevations, right? Like we were talking about with the Sierra Nevadas and the snowfall and then the the melting into the rivers that then go down via gravity. So cities extend aqueducts to mountains and rivers and they get fresh water from the hydrological cycle. And remember, it's the same hydrological cycle that's been on the planet today as it was 66 million years ago when dinosaurs were drinking water. We are still drinking the same water that dinosaurs drank 66 million years ago. It's always so profound to immerse ourselves in that. Again, so it's brought down by gravity to the city metros near sea level. And these were some of the first places we had ancient Egypt, India, Greece with Archimedes water screw, Rome, and then Persia. Persia had the Kanant, the Oman country, and then Petra in Jordan, which we'll have a photo of here in a moment. South America as well. And then I'll go ahead and show you some of them and come and come back as well. This one, I believe, is from the California, I'm sorry, I believe this one's from the Arizona Water Project, this one here. And you can see that, I believe this is the Colorado River, okay? So you can see how that looks. And then this is the one from Petra in Jordan. And you can see that this is where they would have the there on the left, right underneath of the tree in between the rocks. That's where they would have the water, the aqueduct. And then this is a Roman aqueduct down here at the bottom. And this Roman aqueduct is actually currently located in France. And if you want to do further research on these, just go ahead and take a screenshot of them and then upload them into images.google.com and you can do further research on any of the images that you find interesting. It's cool stuff. Okay, so those are the rills. Those rills in the one from Petra in Jordan. Rills are smaller aqueducts used for consumption or agriculture or aesthetic. Some of the Roman aqueducts still supply water to Rome today. Reservoirs are large natural slash artificial lakes used as source of water supply reservoirs are an insane invention as well with dams we'll get to that and hydroelectrical power all this type of stuff microbiomes drastically change when tap water changes tap water location changes 
like me traveling between California and South Dakota. So it's kind of interesting because in this case, I was drinking the Hetch Hetchy water system in here in the Bay in the Bay Area in Northern California. Now we're in Southern California. So our water source has changed. And then when I went back to home to Sioux Falls, South Dakota to do the high level perception distillation that I was using the Lewis and Clark regional water system. So I'm literally drawing water from ground aquifers in South Dakota, which are surrounded in many times on beds of quartzite rock, which is different than Hetch, Hetch, than Hetch Hetchy here in Northern California. And so we have to remember that it's even at that level of interconnectedness where when you fly to a different place around the world and you drink different tap water that you're, you're creating a different uh, microbiotic changes. And that's very interesting. All right, aqueducts are genius. All right, on we go. Water in California. All right, so California has a state water project. The acronym is SWP. It's one of the world's largest, most productive, and most controversial water systems. And actually, it's extremely controversial with A. Hetch Hetchy, up in Northern California, and it's also extremely controversial with down here in Southern California with Los Angeles and the uh, Owens Valley, uh, which has had a massive redirection of water to Los Angeles. So we will talk about water rights as well in this stream. This is one of the largest public water and power utilities in the world. 30 million plus people rely on water carried by these rivers. It irrigates 6 million plus acres of farmland, generating 6,500 gigawatt hours of hydroelectricity per year, the largest single consumer of power in California. So net usage is around 5,100 gigawatt hours. The Sacramento River watershed and San Joaquin River basin. The California aqueduct is the main channel and you'll kind of see the Sacramento River and the San Joaquin River Basin here, which I'll, I'll kind of, we'll bring this up as we go as well. But you can definitely start seeing that there's that, there's that, then there, there's that Sacramento and San Joaquin and they're pouring right into that. California aqueduct and that's going right down to the Central Valley and that's going right to LA as well and that's providing to Northern California as well it's so so beautiful so we'll get to investigate this a little bit more as well it's so so nice my gosh and I'm so grateful for, we should definitely be grateful for the geographic information surveyors, GIS teams, because it's the GIS teams that go and actually map the rivers in our states and then enable us to have beautiful data visualizations like this. All right, so there's some interesting stuff here that 70% is used for urban areas and industry in Southern California and Bay Area. 
and 30% is used for irrigation in Central Valley agriculture. To reach SoCal, it is pumped 2,882 feet over mountains, right? So this is where in SoCal, it's a lot harder to pump the water over mountains, whereas in NorCal, you get this kind of very steady gravity that drops it all the way from Hetch Hetchy all the way down to the South Bay and then up and into the Bay Area and San Francisco. So the the Edmonston pumping plant is the highest single water lift in the world at 1,926 feet. The California State Water Project is estimated annual benefits of $400 billion to the California economy. It was incepted in 1960 and it has required construction of 29 dams, 18 pumping plants, five hydroelectric power plants, 700 miles of canals, pipelines, and tunnels, and it spans two-thirds the length of California. All for you to be able to go and fill up some tap water, clean up some dishes, you know, take a little shower, use a little dishwasher, Water some plants outside. Make your coffee. Like, that's a lot. That's a big, that's a lot of foresight to think so far in advance to make this state water project so that 30 million people that rely on it can actually get water. We have to think this way. We have to think with this foresight. It's so important. And to think in an interconnected seventh generation principle way. The agribusiness lobbyers helped skeptical NorCal and SoCal pass the bond. And this is, this is pretty funny because those, as those, those, many of us know in California, there's some sort of a funny relationship between NorCal and SoCal where there's a little bit of, uh, this cute like play there's a play between there's a dynamical interplay it's funny some people are so pro socal and some people are so pro norcal and i more i i in my perspective the people that see both of them as absolutely unbelievably gorgeous and full of richness and and beauty and intelligence are at an even higher level than those that are just picking one over the other. They're both so incredible. I miss Mount Tam so much. I miss China Beach. Those are two of my kind of favorite spots over in NorCal. But I love you too, SoCal. I love you too. So NorCal was worried that SoCal was stealing their water. <laughs> NorCal was like, we have more access to the Sierra Nevadas. We don't want SoCal to steal our water. And SoCal was worried that other states using the Colorado River were trying to get LA to stop using it. Which is funny because, you know, SoCal is taking water from the Colorado River 
And so the California State Water Project could be in seen as an incentive for LA to stop using the Colorado River. <laughs> this is the water rates. This is a lot of the water rate stuff. It's crazy. So the bond was passed on an extremely narrow margin of 174,000 votes out of 5.8 million ballots cast. So the bond was passed by such a small amount. So the Oroville Dam in the Sierra Nevada foothills, that's the tallest dam in the USA. It had the crisis in 2017 after the California rainwater flooding. And this is very interesting because it was the wettest winter in almost 100 years. The river water flows more than 40 times normal speeds at 25,000 cubic feet per second. And this flood followed the 2011 to 2017 California drought, which from 2011 to 2014 was the driest in California history, killing 102 million trees. So after 2017 flooding, California was declared totally drought free. So it's very yin yang. I just love that yin-yang perspective. 2011 to 2017, hardcore California drought, massive issue. And then this wettest winter in almost 100 years right afterwards. Super yin-yang. And the San Luis Reservoir. It's an artificial lake, fifth largest reservoir in California. One acre foot equals 326,000 gallons. Sometimes they use that as a unit of measurement. California rain falls mostly from October through May, more in NorCal than in SoCal. 75% of total rainfall volume happens north of SAC. So north of SAC, 75% of the total rainfall volume is happening. So whereas 75% of the total water demand is in SoCal, and that's because of population and agriculture. So basically the large volume of rainfall is happening north of SAC, but then the large demand is happening south. And so we have to move it down for population and agriculture. So state water projects, very important. Summers are very dry in the state. Snowfall on Sierras feeds the network of reservoirs and surface water sources. Low rainfall, slash snowfall can result in drought. And this is one of those important points that I was mentioning a little bit earlier, that one large earthquake will put tens of millions of people in California without water. So one large earthquake screwing up the state water project could put 30 million people without water. And it could put most of the United States without access to a third of their vegetables, two-thirds of their nuts, and two-thirds of their fruit. So there's also hundreds of millions of people around the U.S. and world as well that have high amounts of demand for California's lush fruits, vegetables, and nuts. So one large earthquake could wreck the California economy, water supply, and global agricultural industry. We basically have to become gods. We, we have to accelerate our technology, accelerate our spirituality, accelerate our entrepreneurship, and accelerate our art, our capabilities as a civilization. Basically, the robustness, the anti-fragility of our cell, of our organism, planet Earth, and for us to be able to withstand 
such insanities on the Richter scale so that we can robustly maintain our water supplies, our egg systems, and everything. I'll get to more solutions for that towards the end as well. The California population is currently 40 million, but expected to be 50 million by 2050. So it's only going to be jacking up the need for water demand significantly. Everybody want to visit. Uh. <laughs> it's true. California is top notch in the United States. Top-notch people, top-notch culture, top-notch geography. It's amazing. Top-notch tech, top-notch entertainment. California is approving billions of dollars in bonds for water development and management. And this is kind of where I'm giving a little hint. Should be focused on fusion and desalination. We'll get to that. All right, so we got a chance to check this out already. Those blue, bit blue, big, big blue dots, like you see there for Lake Oroville, are the reservoirs, and then you have the aqueducts, as you see there. That's kind of rolling down into where like San Luis Reservoir is. The square, yellow squares, are the hydroelectric stations, and the triangles are the pumping stations. And so there you got all of these different rivers pouring in from the Sierra Nevadas into our water supply in California and then that being distributed around to NorCal to the Central Valley and to SoCal San Diego is actually doing a good pilot right now in desalination so we'll t we'll talk more about that later and then here's another this is kind of where I also get a little bit of uh, uh, excitement for the geographical information systems mappers they do such a good job look at this gorgeous map of how they mapped all of these different rivers that lead into the Sacramento and then the San Joaquin look at this it's just so beautiful and so clear and just look at how fractal it is that's one of my favorite things if you if you look at where the Bay Area is and if you look closer to Antioch there on the eastern side of the Bay Area it's so beautiful because right there that's such a beautiful analog to what the blood vessels look like inside of the body or what the the neural networks look like or what the or how a uh, cellular evolution occurs when it becomes scaffolded and blossoms into uh, multi-cells. It's interesting how these grow-outs are so similar in analogs and metaphors 
I love how well they map that. And then, yeah, so here's a, a higher scale image of what it looks like to see that California aqueduct, the one that's running through that middle of the state. And then here's the water supply and storage in California. So again, you got a bunch of these reservoirs that are measured in acre feet. So you have Shasta and Trinity up north. You have Oroville, Berryessa, Folsom, Malones, Don Pedro, San Luis, Pine Flat, McClure. And I mean, I've been, I'm so lucky because I've gotten the opportunity to actually go to these places. I've been at these places. I've immersed myself in so much of the California geography. So I actually have a deeper amount of respect for this entire water system. I highly recommend people, especially ones that live here in California, please take, even if it's just the weekend, like take Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to just go somewhere to one of these gorgeous geographical destinations in California and just spend the weekend there. Just immerse yourself in that nature and that serenity like John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt would want you to do who put the American Antiquities Act together in 1906 that made it so that we actually could preserve places like all of our beautiful national parks across the USA. And that's why California is beautiful, is because of that. It's, it was left very beautiful. And so there's your key to watersheds. You have the Sacramento River watershed, San Joaquin River and Tular Lake. And then there's the Colorado River there on the right. And this is the most labeled geographic information systems that I could find. This one's the most labeled and the most of the entire state of the rivers specifically. so so beautiful and then this is that Shasta Dam that we were talking about above so this is one of the most northern dams in California these are very beautiful structures they're both arguably spiritually and scientifically we'll figure out better ways right we're gonna desalinate use fusion for that we have better and better ways to preserve our natural environments rather than damming them up to use the hydroelectric power and and to um to provide us with with the water um over the time that it's actually not undergoing the process of sn snowfall and then melting and then we can dam it up so we have better solutions to this that we're currently exploring and working on so that we can actually not have these. But it's it's almost like a how how can you say this? It's like the it's almost in a sense, it's like the the it's like the Model T, right? It's like the Ford Model T. And today we have the Tesla, right? And you have to respect the Model T. You know what I mean? It's not as safe, it's not as efficient, it's not as fast, it's not as luxurious, uh, and neither were 
120 years ago, the first airplanes that the Wright brothers made out of out of out of wood and cloth <laughs> like that was dangerous. Uh, and uh, but you have to respect the fact that, you know, today we're flying around in these commercial planes, 100,000 of them fly every single day commercially across the world and that we have to respect the the cloth and wood plane just like we have to respect the model t just like we have to respect these this this california state water project that has so many of these dams and so many of these pumping stations because it was it was our baby step you know it was one of our baby steps along the way to a more enlightened a more scientific a more spiritually seventh generationally artistically sound and robust strategy that we're going towards next all right, so now we'll unpack some of the nuance of the L.A. water sources. Well, what more can I say? Well, welcome to L.A. Man, I can't get rid of that. I love it. Oh, it's so nice. I love being here in SoCal. All right. So. You get mountainous snowmelt from the Rockies and the eastern Sierra Nevada. And there's three large aqueducts supply water over hundreds of miles to the 13 million plus people in the L.A. metro area. Two are from the Owens River area, and the third is from the Colorado River, right? So we're going to unpack those water rights issues with the Owens River and then the Colorado River. So there's three of those total large aqueducts that are supplying water over hundreds of miles to the 13 plus million people. Whereas when we get really good at fusion and desalination we can have it right offshore and there's there's good ways to uh, deposit the concentrated saline back into the, the ocean which we'll describe that's one of the big environmental concerns so 60 percent of the los angeles water system is from the cra the colorado river aqueduct and that starts at the California-Arizona border, and it travels 242 miles. This is from the Rocky Mountains origination point to over 1,000 miles away and can deliver up to 1 billion gallons daily. So just to give you guys the visual, that's right here. So here you have the... On the left, you can see that's the Colorado River that's coming down. And then there's the Parker Dam where it stops. And then it's shot over hundreds of miles uh, and pumped uh, a bunch of stations up and over the San Bernardino Mountains um, into Los Angeles to 13 plus million people. And so this is a big sort of issue is that you have these, uh, you have like a billion gallons daily that are being consumed by people here in Los Angeles and that it's just being pumped, you know, a thousand miles away from its source in the Rockies. And so there's a much more local solution, right? And this is, this is something we can also consider for vertical farms. When you think about, you know, back in my home in South Dakota, you can think about, well, what about the, what about the vertical farms to actually make the, you know, the tomatoes locally, you know, what if we made the food there and we picked it right off the vine in South Dakota and ate it rather than picking it off the vine in 
California, other states, and then driving it uh, in trucks to the grocery stores in South Dakota and other states. So we have to think about that sort of farm to table, especially like vertical farm to table mentality and that local mentality. And that might be what we use for water rather than transporting it a thousand miles. And we'll get to some examples where the Middle East is doing a lot of its desalination right now. And in the future, it's going to be even better. It's already gotten a lot better with the technology. 33%, so again, 60 was from Colorado River. 33% is from the LA Aqueduct, which goes from the Eastern Sierra Nevada mountains. And that's from the Owens River and reservoirs. That's 430 million gallons daily. And between 1909 to 1928, it caused Los Angeles to grow from 61 square miles to 440 square miles. Most people don't know this because a lot of us are, you know, fresh to NorCal or fresh to SoCal. But, you know, you can imagine that's some insane population growth over just about 20 years. L.A. grows from 61 square miles to 440 square miles. That's crazy. And then approximately 10 percent groundwater. It's kind of interesting that the Colorado River Aqueduct CRA has been called one of the seven engineering wonders of American engineering, which is pretty interesting. And then the Colorado River comes from the Rocky Mountains. And again, it's Parker Dam on Lake Havasu on the California-Arizona border. And that's here on the right. And also water source for the CAP, the Central Arizona Project. Half the electricity it generates powers the aqueduct to pump to L.A. So at least there's that. The Parker Dam at least generates half the electricity to power those pumps to LA. It employed 30,000 people up to 10,000 at a time over the eight year build period during the Great Depression. So interesting. A $220 million bond was approved on September 29th, 1931. And work began in January 1933 or near Thousand Palms and in 1934, the United States Bureau of Reclamation began work on the Parker Dam. It's always such so interesting thinking about the foresight required and all of the humans that did this right. It's not just turning on the tap and, you know, being grateful, but also thinking about the tens of thousands of people that over even during the Great Depression put together the infrastructures that enable us today to live in such abundance for our roots to have the nutrients that are needed for our seed to be able to produce the gifts you're going to hear me just drill that one that's my favorite analogy that i've ever uncovered so the seed needs the nutrients in the roots just like the tree does in order for it to produce fruits is the same way that the human needs the basic needs the roots need the nutrients of love water food shelter electricity technology education healthcare, the basic needs so that the human themselves can also produce creative fruits and gifts into the world it's, it's the number one analogy from high level perception such a good one and you can see that I started with that rather than the consciousness and metaphysics stuff. I wanted to start very explain like I'm five for people and build a relationship and build trust with them. 
I'll unpack more in some high-level perception streams as well, which are to come. So, the aqueduct is finished in 1935, and water first flowed in the aqueduct on January 7th, 1939. Wow. So grateful. To, to anybody out there that actually had a, like a grandparent that worked on this project, it would be really cool to hear from you. You know, email us, simulationseries at gmail.com. We'd love to, we'd love to hear from you about that. That's super interesting. On any of these California water system projects, if you had grandparents, family, friends that worked on them, it'd be super interesting. All right, so that was LA, SoCal, Los Angeles. And now we're up to NorCal, San Francisco, Bay Area, water sources. Bum, bum, bum. Dun, 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 dun. All right. So, the Hetch Hetchy Regional Water System. Sierra Nevada Reservoirs in Yosemite National Park. The snowmelt runs into the Tulum River and fills Hetch Hetchy. We'll get into the nuance of this, I promise, for all of those that... We're going to get into the nuance of that. 2.7 million plus residential, commercial, and industrial customers in 30 SF Bay Area cities across four counties... San Francisco, San Mateo, Santa Clara, and Alameda. SF gets 85% of its water from Hetch Hetchy, approximately 250 million gallons per day. The other approximately 15% comes from runoff in the Alameda and Peninsula watersheds, produces about 1.7 billion kilowatt hours per year, meeting 20% of SF's electricity needs. Water is some of the cleanest in the U.S. from Hetch Hetchy, only primary filtered and disinfected and almost entirely gravity fed. Remember, we were talking about that when you don't need pumps. It's just going and being pulled by gravity down to the final destination more near sea level. 280 miles of pipes, 60 plus miles of tunnels, 11 reservoirs, 5 pump stations, 2 water treatment plants, 4 bay division pipelines bdpls and those split at fremont the Mukaloom aqueduct provides water to 1.4 million in east bay and that's from the Mukaloom river in sierra nevadas and that can pull up to 325 million gallons per day this is also funny because east bay and peninsula sf also have a little bit of a funny little dance that they play so it was constructed due to fear of SF hegemony on water supply. Super interesting. <laughs> East Bay's like, nah, dog. We're not letting SF have a hegemony on this. We got to... It's kind of interesting because it's also an analogy potentially to humans as well is where you want to... You want to also, as you gain your nutrients for your seed, you want to be self-sufficient and... Inter in independent and interdependent at the same time and that you want to help teach other people that way as well 
So almost no fossil fuel consumption to move water from mountains to tap. Peninsula uses Crystal Springs and San Andreas Reservoirs. Our recording studio, when it was in San Mateo, was right next to the Crystal Springs Reservoir. So beautiful. The, uh, the North Bay, one plus million people use the North Bay Aqueduct in the California State Water Project from Lake Oroville, and some use the Russian River. And total Bay Area population is approximately 7 million plus residents. And this is the San Francisco in 1846. And it was Yerba Buena, good herb, Yerba Buena. Uh, And that's also, for those that don't know, Treasure Island, which is that island that is where the Bay Bridge connects from San Francisco to Oakland. That's actually called Yerba Buena Island. So Yerba Buena Island slash Treasure Island. And so that's kind of how you can still remember that it was called Yerba Buena. And it's funny, you wonder, like, why was it called Good Herb? And then you think, hmm, probably because the Emerald Triangle in NorCal is where so much of the Good Herb of cannabis is grown. Like, eh, it's funny. It's good. So in 1846, you can see like in this picture, look at how virgin San Francisco looked. Just so crazy. And I don't know exactly where that is, but it kind of looks like it might be by maybe like the Chrissy Field area. Super interesting. This kind of stuff fascinates me too because you got to run back in your mind like 150 years and think about what life was like as well to really draw a more integral worldview, a more holistic worldview where you can encompass the 100 billion plus people that have lived and died before us to build the civilization that we have today. And so here's a visualization of the Hetch Hetchy regional water system. So over there on the right, you can see the Yosemite National Park and you can see that Hetch Hetchy Reservoir and that will again we'll get into the nuance of what happened with that and that there it goes down with all the other reservoirs like lake eleanor lake lloyd the new don pedro and what happens is it goes down 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 all the way to that fremont area where it splits up into those separate pipes and you have it being fed into the Bay Area. So that gives you a visual of the Hetch Hetchy original water system. And this is a really cool photo because a lot of people in the Bay know this picture. It's uh, you can kind of see some of those Hetch Hetchy uh, water system pipelines uh, from the peninsula and you can see them just like that. It looks so cool. And then again, so here's that idea of what is going on in the uh, Hetch Hetchy water system where we're getting all of our water up in NorCal. Okay, so here, now we're going to get into the nuance of Hetch Hetchy. And if if you've never heard about the nuance of this water war in California, this dilemma in California really tune into this one because it's it's a profound one it's really fascinating okay hetch hetchy so the san francisco earthquake and fire in april 1906 
3,000 people died, 80% of the city was destroyed, and there was a clear lack of water to put out the fire. The seismograph needle 3,000 miles away across the country captured it 19 minutes later in Albany, New York, and the New York Times used to cost one cent 115 years ago, now it's four bucks a month. I'll show you a graphic for that in a moment, but yeah, this is the picture of the San Francisco earthquake and post-fire in April 1906, so destructive. And here's the New York Times, so interesting. Back on April 1906, there's the little right there in the center. You can see that that's where the seismograph is. And then up in the top right corner, you can see it used to cost one cent <laughs> elsewhere, two cents. <laughs> so funny. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I guess 115 years ago, the New York Times was a penny and now it's four bucks a month. So you always wonder like, has purchasing power increased as well? You know, because if it's static, that's it's not good. You want purchasing power to be increasing. So it doesn't it doesn't feel like you're paying the same amount for the New York Times 115 years ago as you're paying for it today, but that you're paying less. You want it to be democratized. You want it to cost less. You want to have more purchasing power. Look that up economically. It's very important for you to understand. All right, so onwards on Hetch Hetchy. So what happened was, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but basically one of the most profound things that the United States has ever done, in my opinion, is the Amer American Antiquities Act of 1906. And John Muir, who founded the Sierra Club, pioneered it with Teddy Roosevelt. It was brilliant legislation saving the USA most gorgeous national parks from private resource extraction and development. It's a good seventh-generation principle thinking. SF desperately was seeking water source and could have pulled from other Sierra Nevada locations, but pushed to fill Hetch Hetchy Valley. And this was bad seventh generation principle thinking. Excuse me. And I have many photos of Hetch Hetchy Valley what it looked like before we filled it and what it looked like after we filled it. And I'll show you also about what we can do moving forward. So I have really good photos for that. And this is very important because Hetch Hetchy is a lot like Yosemite Valley and everybody knows Yosemite Valley is one of the most beautiful places in the world. The Raker Act legislation was the push to dam and fill the Hetch Hetchy Valley to provide water to San Francisco and John Muir vigorously opposed it and he said this quote one of nature's rarest and most precious mountain temples often compared to yosemite valley in beauty i love that quote by john muir one of nature's rarest and most precious mountain temples and right away we were pushing to damn it and fill it and it's just You'll see. You'll see here in a moment. Will's pictures. Muir said he did not want to deny water to millions of people. He just didn't want the newly formed national parks to fall victim to public development. Government realized they needed an entity to enforce park laws and fight against development, thus birthing the National Park Service, NPS. So that was very T to T, trauma to treasure. It's super interesting how those descents into the shadow can actually spur the fires of fruits in this case. So we got the National Park Service due to more and more people 
having issues with uh, the protection of the national parks. So Muir's efforts are also noted as the start of modern environmentalism. All right. Now, where did the name Hetch Hetchy come from? <laughs> Indigenous people have lived in Hetch Hetchy Valley for 6,000 years. It's always important to do that process of going back and immersing ourselves in what their lives were like, right? When we talk about people like the Vedic Rishis or the Egyptians or Indus Valley or Mesopotamians or the people that have lived in uh, Australia Aboriginals or any of these sort of planetary uh, spiritual traditions, people that have lived a really long time in the same areas, we have to really do our best to get behind what it means to have lived like that back in that day and how interconnected and how primal also um, things were. So it's not all roses, but there's definitely some important things to sort of grab some of those codes and synthesize them with modern codes into you know that sorting algorithm, Chapter 7. Subjecting the valley to controlled bushfires, preventing forest from taking over the valley meadows. So in the 1800s, the first white visitors thought it was from divine intervention, not knowing it was the product of millennia of management by Native Americans. And it was the Miwok Native Americans that said that cooked seeds of a prominent grass growing in the valley into a mush, which they called hetchetchi. So again, so you think you're like you're walking in there as the first white visitor and you're like, oh, my God, it's divine intervention. Look at how the meadows are so beautiful. But it was really because of millennia of management by Native Americans. It's super interesting that's documented. And you can be a, a skeptic and, and think, well, that's potentially just some story that's being told. And it was, you know, it was actually divine intervention and they're just trying to get money and all this stuff. But almost certainly it's true that different indigenous around the planet did things like this over time to ensure a, a harmonious relationship with their environment now it's cool that a, a cooked seeds of a prominent grass growing in the valley into a mush is called hechechi and that's where the name comes from so the Raker Act is passed in 1913 by the Wilson administration. Again, this is just seven years after the American Antiquities Act of 1906, allowing the only time in our nation's history for a single city to develop one of our national parks for its own exclusive use. So it's the only time that our American Antiquities Act has been violated to make the to fill Hetch Hetchy and provide the water to the Bay Area. 4 million people per year go to Yosemite Valley without knowing that 15 miles north, a second gorgeous valley used to exist. So just 15 miles north of Yosemite is the Hetch Hetchy Valley that is arguably equally as beautiful as Yosemite. So again, think about all of that beauty that can be taken in, in spite, have deep inspiration happen from that. We'll get into more of that soon. So it was the Oshagnesi Dam that was finished in 1923. The source of water 
and power was on public land, so no private profit could be derived from the development, and SF has been accused of selling the hydroelectric power to PG&E, who then resells it back to the public at a profit. SF is currently not using their share of the water in Lake Don Pedro, the biggest reservoir on the Tulum River. So a dam removal would cost somewhere between 3 to $10 billion U.S. dollars. The Don Pedro Reservoir holds two times as much water as Hetch Hetchy. Only modest new supplies would be required in the driest years. Otherwise, everything is already available for diversion. Opportunity of not repeating mistakes and creating an experience of visiting Hetch Hetchy Valley that could be superior even to Yosemite Valley because now we have the 2020s insight and technology and, and uh, foresight as we develop it. Hetch Hetchy remains as the ooh, greatest blemish in any of our national parks. Damn. It's an important statement, though, to think about it that way. Within two years after draining the valley, grasses would cover most of its floor. Within 50 years, vegetative cover would be complete except for exposed rocky areas. And with intensive management, recovering the original state of the meadow as the Native American created would be feasible. It's also interesting because only cutting a hole through the base is necessary rather than removing the whole thing. And then I had this profound moment while I was synthesizing this note in October of 2020. And it was very interesting because I go, I wrote like, wow, I'm really seeing the future right now. We leave a small chunk of the dam at the base, the Alshagnesi Dam, and make a small historical museum. And so a couple generations down the line, our grandkids will see this big nature recovery that we made with the Hetch Hetchy Valley and be proud globally to have made this incredible landmark back. And I wrote, remember the future. And this is very profound and very important. You can, you can envision those children coming and learning about that process and seeing that last pit of the dam that's left and immersing themselves in the Hetch Hetchy Valley, just like the Yosemite Valley and having that drive so much inspiration, so much economic growth, so much prosperity, and then doing things like fusion and desalination uh, for the water supply. Uh, and in this case, there's also the, uh, the new Don Pedro Dam as well along the way to that uh, fusion and desalination future. So raising the new Don Pedro Dam 30 feet would store the Hetch Hetchy water supply. Hetch Hetchy restoration could result in recreational value of up to $180 million per year or possibly an overall economic value of up to $100 billion overall economic value. It's huge. And this is interesting. This is also super duper interesting. So it's no surprise to me that I'm so deeply passionate about things like this California water system and that this idea of Hetch Hetchy was something that even at the time I didn't realize, but my friend, Grace Buclo, she was my close friend during debate and I went to the winter formal with her as a date too. And I hung out with her and my other friend, Luke Hawkins, in Berkeley in 2012. And this is super interesting because at that time I was somewhere around 
20 years old, right? So I'm only 20 years old at this time. And and she worked at uh, Restore Hetch Hetchy for four months in 2012 while she was in California. So it's crazy because she was here visiting for four months working on Restore Hetch Hetchy and I'm 20 years old and I have no idea kind of what she's doing, but she's already at this kind of like next level of thought, even though it took me eight years longer. It took me until 2020 to come to the you know profound realization that she had made in 2012. So it's interesting how consciousness realizes these things at, at different times, right? You can't, the good old quote, you can't pull on flowers to make them grow faster. And I saw her on the plane flying back from San Francisco to Denver in January 2020 when I was coming back from my talk at PCMA. And even the Hetch Hetchy website says, for a second, Yosemite. I even messaged Grace and I told her, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, you know, it became a big thing for me to want to, uh, to drain the Hetch Hetchy Valley and to uh, go to the new, new Don Pedro Dam and then to fusion and desalination and so that we could have this and i messaged her that that it was so profound that i had can't come to this realization that she was doing in 2018 and she said or she was doing it in 2012 and she said she said yeah good to hear from you uh, drain the valley so yeah it's so interesting how you know you got to see the meaning you have to see the profundity you have to see the synchronicity in all of these things in life rather than taking it from a nihilistic perspective my biggest critique about the Hetch Hetchy website uh, for restoring Hetch Hetchy is that there's no plan on how to fund and execute the demolition there's a little bit on how SF will fill the void of missing water a little on long-term restoration plans but there's nothing again nothing on nuclear fusion as where we should be focused it's very environmentally driven which is good but can be a lot clearer with a video showing all these details to make the true push and here's that hetch hetchy aqueduct that you can see here so interesting and then here's another visual of the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir and Aqueduct. And remember, if you want to see these images, just take a screenshot and then upload it into images.google.com and you can pull them up yourselves. And more data about them as well. All right, so now we're getting into the territory that is going to be very um, touching to to people. So um, I'll I'll probably go through a a short bit about this, um, and hopefully hopefully it can it can inspire you. So this is the photo that was taken of the Hetch Hetchy Valley uh, before. It was dammed up with the Oshagnesi Dam. So this is an actual photo. I believe it's somewhere around that 1910-ish timeline or so. And so, again, just immerse yourself in the beauty of that. Like, look at how much it looks like Yosemite. It's so incredibly gorgeous. And it's calling for humans to be able to go there and get inspired and play and relax and absorb the spiritual and scientific energy. 
And so then this is the artist's depiction also of the Hetch Hetchy Valley, serene, the meadows, the redwoods, waterfall, deer, beautiful river. Another artist depiction, gorgeous, serene, tranquil, spiritual, love, bliss, joy, ecstasy. Looks amazing. And then this is the Oshagnesi Dam. So this is what we did to it. We dammed it up. And then here's what it looks like now. So this is the modern Hetch Hetchy Reservoir now. And of course, the laws are very strict, so there's nobody that's going on it, although there are proposals to try and allow people to go on it, but, you know, let's screw some stuff up when someone, you know, drops their can in it, you know, and bathes with their sunscreen and stuff like that, so. You know, there's another image of the damned, and there's another image of Hetch Hetchy damned. And then here's uh, one of the nicer sort of satellite views. I like this one a lot. This one was really nice. So this is what it looks like from the satellite, right? So you think like, holy cow, like that's, you know, that's the Hetchachi Reservoir. They're the, so draining that would just open up this massive, gorgeous valley. Look at that. Look at how cool and playful and fun that'd be. It's so cool. And so great, just north of Yosemite. This one's really nice, too. This one's really beautiful. This one definitely touches my heart. Bet you guys didn't think there would be a sales pitch for draining Hetch Hetchy in the middle of the California water system <laughs> breakdown. So now you know. Now you know. Yeah, here's another one. This one's really nice because it's literally the the artist right in front of the the damned. So the undamned picture right in front of the damned. Wow. Yep. And then here's a beautiful picture of somebody also in that valley. I believe that's on the other aspect of it the other side of it all right so in general the california water wars are absolutely crazy so it's super controversial water rights debates whoever brings the water brings the people right as we've been talking about so sf you have hetch hetchy it's the national park versus drinking water for millions right so we want to open that up but then there's millions of people that rely on it and with the la with the owens river you have farmers versus metro so since 1913 diversion to los angeles caused the ruining of the valley's economy and drying of the owens lake and so lawsuits forced lawdp leddwp to start releasing water into the 62 mile long lower owens river in december 2006 and in less than one year the lower Owens River was teeming with fish, birds, and other wildlife. So this is the type of stuff that you can see. You see like something that's really dried up, 
not prospering at all because the water has been diverted to where more people are at. And then if you do get the opportunity to just pour the water in, in just one year back to teaming with fish, birds and wildlife. So it's kind of like an urban versus rural debate. So, you know, you got one, you have increased the redistribution of water to large agricultural and urban sectors, or two, you have increased conservation and preserve the natural ecosystems and communities of the water sources. So this is kind of the, the, the draw is that you have San Francisco, the Bay Area, you have Los Angeles, you have SoCal, you have these massive metros that want to redistribute the water there, but then you have the local uh, communities and natural ecosystems that want to preserve it. And so this is what it looks like. So by the way, for those that don't know, this is what's going on on the on the east side of the state of California. So there's Mono Lake right there. You can see that's the Nevada border as well. And so that's the Owens River and the valley and how it got diverted down with that Los Angeles aqueduct there at the bottom. And if you ever drive through that area, you'll see that it's not as thriving as it could be because of this. But then again, Los Angeles and everything that it achieved um, given the fact that it got water, uh, that's also difficult to calculate because that's been a lot of creativity and a lot of entertainment and a lot of uh, other things that have been brought to our world from that. And so here's your, again, your geographical information systems map of that similar vision. All right. All right, so now we are reaching the end. So this is kind of one of my big solutions because it's not only the 30 million people in the uh, California that are depending on water and it's not only the the Central Valley that's producing this massive amount of agriculture for not only the 330 million people in the U.S., a third of their vegetables and two-thirds of their fruits and two-thirds of their nuts, but California is exporting so much of their agricultural production around the planet. And then, you know, furthermore is fusion desalination and reclamation there's you know they're sdg number six for a reason because you know if you look at somewhere like lagos in nigeria you have a very similar issue where there's you know, 10 million plus people that need access to that sdg number six clean water sanitation but they can't get access to that basic need in a systematized way that enables them to meet that basic need so that they can be creative and lagos isn't the only place there are plenty of other especially coastal cities around the planet where we could have significantly better um, processes that enable uh, the instantaneity of having water on tap and that enabling that primal need to, to sort of dissipate and hedonically rebaseline to higher levels to be able to achieve goals. So fusion, desalination, reclamation. So Point number one, help pioneer fusion, uh, help pioneer future global technology. And in this case, you really have to take fusion seriously. It's been talked about for a long time. If you don't understand fusion, you should absolutely look up fusion. This is not fission. Um, so become familiar with the difference between fission and fusion. In, 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 in fusion, you are actually fusing atoms. And what you're able to achieve by doing so is you're able to you're able to extract more energy that happens from the fusion than you expended on the process of fusing them. 
And that's completely different than fusion. Fusion is where the uh, horrible catastrophes have happened in the past. And this is why fusion is being invested into by the entire planet. And there's really good reactors like Tokamak's a good one, but even better, it looks like the Stellarator format is an even better upgraded version. And we're like basically babies playing in the fusion space. There are going to be Star Trek ways to to win in the fusion space and so we have to think like the star trek future that we want and then architect the fusion technologies that get us there as a planet with the top scientists the top engineers the top economists the top geopolitical strategy to ensure that that actually occurs and so by doing this by really focusing on future we can really crush our planetary uh like crush the SDGs. We have the want, we want no poverty. We want zero hunger. We want the quality education. We want clean and affordable electricity. We want clean water and sanitation. We want all these basic needs and fusion enables that process as well. So fusion in a sense is one of the most massive uh, panaceas for m many of the world problems. And we need to become more awake to that fact. So, restore Hetch Hetchy, that gives us approximately $100 billion plus dollars in economic value, a natural sanctuary global birthright. We want to restore the Owens Valley community, economy, and wildlife who has suffered for 100 years, right? So, Hetch Hetchy restoration is NorCal, and then Owens Valley restoration is SoCal. And so these are very important water rights disputes that we want to heal. We want to heal. We want to integrate. We want to move on. So we want to be drought resilient. We talked about being anti-fragile. We talked about being robust for earthquakes, for droughts, for all of these things. For human and egg water consumption, ensuring that California's 400 plus agricultural commodities can provide for the USA and the world frictionlessly. We want to remove all of the water diversion projects, so that's dams, pipelines, pump stations, reservoirs, restore completely to original nature, and that fusion provides way more energy than hydroelectric. So it's not even an argument. We don't even need the hydroelectric power. We don't need the wind power. We don't even need the solar power. That's what's brilliant. You know, you always think, you look at the videos of, you know, Star Trek and you look at the videos of even just like futurism topics where there's the VTOL, the vertical takeoff and landing, right? Those massive like quadcopters that transport humans and they're very futuristic. What do they run on? Nuclear fusion. They figure out in the most technologically pinnacle way possible to fuse the atoms and to gain that and harness that energy. Again, you have to remember that we're like, we're crickets trying to imagine the big game. And so it's important to remember that. Chuck the hubris to the side and remember to be humble that think like a hundred years ago, the Wright brothers putting together what they were doing to think that there would be 100,000 commercial flights happening every day, right? So it's the same thing with us today, doing the baby tinkering with fusion, and in 100 years, it's everywhere. And this is interesting too, point six is restore Colorado River to its original state. And it's because the Colorado River is being overdrawn as well. So that also deserves its love. And the steps closer to the Star Trek future of abundance, no scarcity, meeting all basic needs, all gifts being actualized. 
And then fusion is also very important for wastewater reclamation efficiencies. And we'll actually do another uh, conversation on reclamation with our note synthesis. And distillations here on these streams. And you'll get a taste of that because the reclamation process is very important. You can't just think like, oh, I'm going to open up the tap and then I'm going to wash my dishes or my, my shower, or my hair, or flush my toilet with poop in it. And then I'm just going to not care about what happens. No, like it all goes through an, a massive network of pipes into the water reclamation plant. And they have to treat everything properly. They have to remove basically 90 plus percent. You want to be really in like 98, 99 plus percent of all of the contaminants. And we'll get into some of the nuance here before you actually deploy it back into the hydrological cycle. So we have these massive goals. Like these are these these are massive goals. We 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 need to be thinking more like this Star Trek future with these goals. We can do this, guys. We can do this. I love you all. We can do this. We can do this. Remember the future. So we're going to bump up EPA standards globally to 100% contaminant removal, including pharmaceuticals. And I'll explain why that's important here in a moment as well. Uh, pharmaceuticals are uh, they're environmental pollutants. You can get like parts per trillion of the pharmaceuticals over time that are exiting our urine and then going into the hydrological cycle and nothing's ever taking them out so we're constantly drinking parts per trillion of pharmaceuticals that are only building up as more and more people take them so stop downstream pollution for the hydrological cycle every major coastal city will begin using this infrastructure using fusion to desalinate billions of gallons of seawater into freshwater daily that tastes even better than spring water and is even healthier fused with more nourishment we don't know of yet this part we have to imagine, we have to Walt Disney, we have to Pixar, we have to imagine, you know, how can we fuse more nourishment into water that we don't even get in the hydrological cycle? So the same way that a pharmaceutical is actually a pollutant of the water of the hydrological cycle, how can we fuse things into the water supply into the hydrological cycle that actually we haven't heard of, heard of yet. And as you can think about this kind of like in biotech as we enabled GFP and channel rhodopsin and CRISPR-Cas9 and all of these different biotech advancements that we found from, from the biodiversity of the planet, we can potentially add some of that also into uh, our augmentations. And you have to think about this on a planetary level because there's so many cities that, that are coastal that desperately need this. I've been, I've been looking into them and their water architectures. NYC, Dubai, London, Mumbai, Shanghai, Tokyo, Lagos, Sao Paulo, Singapore. So Saudi Arabia is currently pioneering fusion. Saudi Arabia Saline Water Conversion Corporation, SWCC, provides 50% of municipal water in the kingdom. They are the largest desalinating seawater corporation in the world, responsible for 20% of worldwide desalinated water. It's the second largest electrical provider in the country. They operate 32 plants in Saudi Arabia, 4,000 kilometers of pipelines, 10,000 plus employees, assets, valued at 20 billion plus dollars contracted to build new desalination plant in japan and south korea so again this is one of those things where you want to do a little bit of mimesis 
right? You want to go and look at what Saudi Arabia has done and you want to just like kind of what's happened with the United States' IP, you know, planetary wise, people have wanted to come and take some of the IP here and do some mimesis around the world in their countries. Very similar, the US and other developed countries can look at what Saudi is doing right now and take some of that mimesis use some mimesis to take some of their strategy and architectures and augment them to the next level add our own creativities and whatnot san diego in the u.s has been doing a pretty good job at this so san diego water sources this is crazy san diego purchases 80 to 90 percent of its water mostly from the norcal california state water project swp 30 percent and the colorado river 50 percent 10 percent local water supplies and conservation and then there's the the cloud bud lewis carlsbad desalination plant and that was approved by san diego water authority and that's now responsible for providing approximately eight percent of san diego county's water in 2020. the facility cost one billion dollars to build including the plant the pipelines and upgrades to existing facilities to use the water it's the largest desalination facility in the western hemisphere This is really the kind of stuff that we have to get very excited about. Like the largest desalination facility in the Western Hemisphere is literally located in San Diego, in California. Like That's awesome. We need to be pumped about that. And again, we need to do some mimesis. Like what is the Carlsbad desalination plant doing? And how are they providing 8% of San Diego County's water right now? And how can we do some mimesis in order to be able to take that onto Los Angeles, San Francisco, you know, that kind of thing. And beyond to around the world. So they produce up to 50 million gallons of water a day, enough for 400,000 people. And so just to give you an idea, my hometown of Sioux Falls, South Dakota uses, excuse me, uses somewhere around 15 or so million gallons of water a day. So this is very cool that, you know, that basically San Diego is providing like three Sioux Falls cities worth of of water with desalination that's so interesting a negative is byproduct of concentrated brine increasing salinity of water offshore and i'll explain it here in a moment the nation's largest most technologically advanced and energy efficient seawater desalination plant awesome and i'll get into a little bit more on desalination in its own stream conversation and I'll explain kind of what Perth is doing a little bit right now to give you a taste of what's going to happen in that one. But the way you counter the negative byproduct of the concentrated brine, because the idea is when you extract out all of the saline, all of that brine, what happens is it gets really concentrated and then you have your fresh water over here. And then what you do with that is you just put it back in the ocean, but you can't just put it back in the ocean over and over again in the same spot because you're going to cause the marine life disruption in that area. So what you need to do is you need to take it and what Perth has been doing is they've been taking it a little bit uh, in, a, in a slightly more distributed fashion, and that's been helpful. But I would go uh, beyond Perth, Australia, and what I would do is I would go to the next step, which is you take the brine and you, you, know, you package it up onto barges, and then you take those barges and you take the barges out to the sea, and then you drop really small amounts of brine every while. And then eventually you have drones that go out and just drop the brine 
out there or maybe in the future there's a way to use fusion in order to be able to uh, figure out a way to take care of the brine right again it's ridiculous how plentiful our our planet's seawater is something 97 percent of of the planet is, is the seawater and so we must be able to desalinate it with fusion so costs more than reservoir water but less than importing water so it costs more than reservoir water for desalination right now plant requires approximately 40 megawatts to operate and is that mega what's a millions i think right and cost of approximately 50 million dollars per year project commenced in 1993 after five years of drought exactly so after five years of drought there was a big trigger in order for them to be able to make this general atomics pioneered the membrane technology they are an energy and defense corporation la jolla with 15,000 employees doing research in fission fusion surveillance aircraft drones electronic wireless and laser technologies and then I made this statement here because it's very important, but I'll, I'll actually get back to it in a second because I, I want to I want to show you this picture. Um, here at the top, you can see that's the mouth of the lagoon, and then you have the intake, and then what's going on is there's your power plant, and then next to it's the desalination plant, and then you have the desalination happen, and you have the outfall, right? And so this is also what the interior looks like, the one in San Diego. And so all of those is where the insane process of extracting out all of the what you don't want in the seawater is happening. And then I'll just quickly uh, explain this, what I wrote here, that if Wikipedia makes an algorithmic script that goes through each page and clicks on each reference slash source at the bottom and then sends a human to each page that returns back a four or four, four, four or four error broken link description so that the sourcing can be fixed. Because occasionally on Wikipedia, I run into this issue where I go to the bottom to where the references and sources are and I click on them and then I get a four or four error broken link description but wikipedia themselves can write i mean i support them i pay them monthly and i recommend actually everybody to pay wikipedia monthly because they're everyone uses it and it's a very important uh decentralized tool i i don't know if everybody probably it's probably approaching four billion people use wikipedia i wouldn't be surprised if half of the planet's using wikipedia and so everybody should at least be contributing as much as they can and so even like a dollar or five dollars or ten dollars a month is very important to be able to for wikipedia to do things like this and so we can become even better at decentralized processes like the encyclopedia okay so now i'll talk a bit about the pharmaceuticals and the water supply so what i was saying earlier is that you have these environmental persistent pharmaceutical pollutants they're called eppps and the strategic approach to International Chemicals Management, SAICM, the International Society of Doctors for the Environment, ISDE, and Environmental Impact of PPCP, Pharmaceuticals and Personal Care Products. And so what's going on is that pharmaceutical residues are contaminating water and soil around our planet and many other global micropollutants that avoid our filtration. Pharmaceuticals have been entering our hydrological cycle over the last 50 years in mass. 
and they act on all living cells when they are recycled through our bodies, although the parts per trillion concentration is very low. So EPPPs are already found in water all over the world, it's been tested, could be extincting species, imbalancing sensitive ecosystems, already affecting reproductive systems of frogs, fish, and mussels, genetic developmental immune and hormonal health effects like estrogen chemicals, EPPP bioaccumulation and toxicity is a top world building health risk in our water supply. Let's read that one more time because now you know what EPPPs are. EPPP bioaccumulation and toxicity is a top world building health risk in our water supply. All water on earth is part of the same stable pool. As larger amounts of pharmaceuticals are consumed, their concentrations in drinking water will increase. So one, they pass through our urine into the environment via sewage treatment plants. Unused pharmaceuticals are dumped down toilets or thrown into landfills. Manufacturing plants unintentionally release pharmaceuticals into the environment. Hospital waste water discharge plays a major role. And when treated sewage sludge gets reused as fertilizer on farms, soya absorbs the antibiotics and has been found in their leaves. They're literally finding antibiotic in the leaves of soya. Pharmaceutical testing of German surface waters, 27 different pharmaceutical substances and concentrations of more than 0.1 microgram per liter. Up to 150 substances have been detected in total. 150 different pharmaceutical substances. Some of these environmental pharmaceutical chemicals are well known to have serious genotoxic effects in humans. Half-life in nature varies depending on the environment, air, water, soil, sludge, but is more than one year for several compounds. See, there are 3,000 plus pharmaceutical substances are approved in the European Union today. So in a small study, several pharmaceuticals were found in the milk of goats, cows, and humans. There you go, EPPPs, now you know. So they're very important. We need entrepreneurs to solve this problem. We need artists, we need creative people to really tackle these biggest problems on our planet. And we need the proper incentive structures that give them and codes of law that enable them to do so. All right, and I'm just going to wrap on the climate, CO2 in parts per million and sea levels. This is extremely important as we're, of course, talking about the water system, planetary water system, California's water system, agriculture, all that kind of stuff. So in 25 years, our sea levels have risen 80 millimeters, which is approximately 3.14 inches, which again, no surprise, it's not an accident. It's not even a synchronicity. It's just beauty. It's literally beauty that 80 millimeters is 3.14 inches, which is literally pi. So again, just really just realize these synchronicities, right? I don't know if you guys know this yet. I haven't really talked about it publicly because I only discovered it during the distillation of high level perception, but 3.14 is pi and it's also Exodus 314, right? In Exodus in the Old Testament is the uh, I am that I am, or I am God I am, right? So when you're getting the Moses and the burning bush and you're getting the, the, the question of tatvam asi, you are that, we are that, or the wahat al-wujud, the unity of all being, the unity of all existence, 
uh, you know, you are God. We are God. We are the publishers and the players of the game. We are the ones that came from the metaverse and we're going to the metaverse in the cyclic cosmology. Okay. Anyway, that's a little bit of consciousness and metaphysics stuff that I've talked about in high level perception. But remember that these things are not accidents. They're purposely the beauties. They're the beauties. Treat them that way. And so in those 25 years, our sea levels rose 80 millimeters, 3.14 inches, and that's NASA, and projections are 54 inches of rise by 2100 if emissions continue at current rates. In 100 years, temperatures have risen 1 degree Celsius, which is approximately 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. That's again NASA. Emissions grow by 0.6% each decade. That's pretty intense. From 20,000 years ago to 1850, CO2 parts per million went up from 185 to 280, and that's the NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And then from 1850 to 2020, CO2 ppm went up from 280 to 415. So in just 170 years, the CO2 ppm went up 135, which is crazy. And then just in the last 15 years, the CO2 ppm went up 35 ppm in 15 years. It's so crazy. And so here's your chart from NASA. And this is in the sea height variation in millimeters. So that's where it goes up to 80. So 3.14 inches raised in sea height. And then you have the temperature anomaly here from 1880 all the way up until going up a degree Celsius up until 2020, 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Extremely important. And then this is the CO2 and PPM in parts per million of just the last 15 years going from 380 to 415. It's so nuts, guys. We got to tackle this. <clears throat> so... Again, it's really important to be very, very careful with our data and with our sources and be doing multiple, multiple tests of these hypotheses and to have global dialectics happening at the world level stages where we can actually get the right, you know, we can get the right data interoperability and data fusion and leverage artificial intelligence to come up with these most ideal visualizations of the planetary data so we as humans can know our effect on the planet, the Anthropocene. So we have to be very careful because it's literally our water supply. It's literally our food supply. It's literally our suffering and our well-being that's at stake, right? So we have to be smart about this. We need to incentivize entrepreneurship, incentivize creativity, incentivize spiritual awakening. We have to incentivize these things. All right, so that was awesome. We covered, you know, you guys learned about EPPPs, Environmental Persistent Pharmaceutical Pollutants. That's great. You guys learned about the importance of fusion and desalination. I'm glad that that hopefully really landed. Um, San Diego as a pioneer here in California, 8% currently is they're responsible for. You guys learned about Saudi Arabia pioneering fusion on the planetary level. We learned about all of these incredible benefits of fusion and what they can do for us. We have to do these things, guys. There's no, we have to get to that Star Trek future of abundance. You know, we talked about some of the California water wars with Hetch Hetchy as well as the Owens River. You know, here's our 
our, this is our beautiful Hetch Hetchy that we want to be able to immerse ourselves in in a couple of decades. Let's get there, guys. Let's get there. Let's get there. Here's currently what the Hetch Hetchy Aqueduct looks like. John Muir, the greatest blemish in any of our national parks. Boom. So interesting. Indigenous people lived there and maintained it, controlling bushfires in order to preserve those valley meadows. One of nature's rarest and most precious mountain temples. Again, if you haven't looked up the American Antiquities Act of 1906, John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt highly recommend looking that up. That's one of the most important aspects to where laissez-faire sort of uh, allowing, you know, uh, markets and capitalism uh, to to go is vast majority of what we should do is ethically, morally, spiritually evolve and then allow ourselves to sort of create and let markets go. But then there's that slight bit of intervention that has to happen, which is the 1906 American Antiquities Act or the perverse incentives of what happened with uh, Purdue Pharma and the opioid epidemic, right? So there are these small interventions that have to happen um, in order to prevent uh, perverse incentives from, from killing humans with opioid addiction or in this case, destroying our national parks. So you guys learned about the Bay Area water sources you guys learned about the Los Angeles water sources. And we got into depths of the actual California State Water Project. We got into the depths about the beauty of aqueducts. And how genius they are. And these key takeaways, guys, these highlights, you got to remember them, you know. You got to remember them. You know, so many of our viewers are in the United States. You got to remember, like, every time you go to a grocery store, a third of all the vegetables came from California. Two-thirds of all the nuts and fruits came from California. You do not want California to have any water problems. Because you want to make sure that you have your food in your grocery stores. And the same thing's true with the 30 million people here that rely on water, that we can't risk um, the horrendous multi year droughts. There are many things. We need to become more anti fragile. We need to become more robust. We need to become more Star Trek. We need to become more resilient. We need to truly embody and incentivize these principles economically, entrepreneurially, creatively, artistically, spiritually, geopolitically. We must do that. That's a must. Remember, California itself as a state is the sixth largest economy in the world as a state. It's crazy. Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Los Angeles, San Diego, and Central Valley. It's crazy. It's beautiful. Agriculture. Wow. All right, guys. Boom. There you go. So that was our first breakdown of my polymathy. So you guys know I'm a polymath. You guys know that I have done a lot of this style of work with 
distilling, synthesizing and distilling down the complex concepts into these sort of super relatable, super narrative driven, super storytelling, super visual and super exegesis, right? Excuse me, with the coloration, the formattings, the emojis, the, you know, the images, the narrative, all these things, excuse me, together. And so you'll see a lot more of this in the future. You'll, I, I just want to also say you'll see this compressed even more. I know this one took a little while. You know, this one's approaching its second hour. And I want to say that it was important for me to go through the process of taking the longer chunk of time to do this so that now in the future I know how to move a little bit quicker and also so that I know that even further in the future we're going to be building the the animation teams and the storytelling teams that can that can kind of Pixar and Walt Disney this this you know this two hour explanation of this note of the California water system and that we can really compress it down into just a couple minute animated video that's the future that's our future we're becoming mimetic gods and so these are the types of things that we're working on doing so over time i'm just going to keep compressing and keep distilling and keep getting you as much of the most abstract juicy artistic essences of these profound points and disseminating those across the planet and awakening people and enlightening them more to things like this so thank you very much for tuning in i greatly appreciate you i would love to hear your thoughts in the comments below let me know what you think about this style of presentation this polymathic style of showcasing what's i've distilled in my notes also let me know what you think about the topic of california water system would love to hear from you about that uh, share this content with other people that drastically need to know about what's going on in these complex water systems i'm going to give you some more notes specifically on water systems like the new york city water system and desalination in general and the process of water reclamation as well and also other places around the world and how they source their water so it's a very very important thing i mean again water is no joke it's super duper important and for our basic needs and also for actualizing gifts and also for agriculture i mean it's crazy how important it is so i love you guys love you all super grateful for you and uh yeah share it as you guys know you already know do that subscribe Follow us. All our links are below. Support us if you'd like. We would love your, your help with building the future with all of our big visionary goals. So you can find our links below to support us as well. Help us grow. And support the other artists, the entrepreneurs, the spiritual leaders in your communities, scientists that you believe in. Support them. Help them flourish. Actualize your own gifts. Focus on that. And focus on architecting the social fabric that maximizes gift as well so that's it everyone go and build the future
manifest your dreams into the world. We love you very much. Thank you for tuning in. Hope this brought you lots of value. Much love. And also investigate consciousness. The nature of reality. <laughs>